Almighty God, in you are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Open our eyes that we may see the wonders of your word and give us grace that we may clearly understand and freely choose the way of your wisdom. And Lord, today, please <clears throat> bless those who continue to fight for our freedom. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. The first reading today is on page 68 in your pew Bibles. Exodus chapter 22, verses 21 through 27. You shall not wrong or oppress a resident alien, for you were aliens in the land of Egypt. You shall not abuse any widow or orphan. If you do abuse them, when they cry out to me, I will surely heed their cry. My wrath will burn, and I will kill you with the sword and your wives shall become widows, and your children orphans. If you lend money to my people, to the poor among you, you shall not deal with them as a creditor. You shall not exact interest from them. If you take your neighbor's cloak in pawn, you shall restore it before the sun goes down, for it may be your neighbor's only clothing to use as cover. In what else shall that person sleep? And if your neighbor cries out to me, I will listen, for I am compassionate. This is the word of the Lord. Our New Testament lesson comes this morning from the Gospel of Mark, the 12th chapter, verses 38 through 44. I invite you to listen now for God's word to the church. As Jesus taught, he said, Beware of the scribes who like to walk around in long robes and to be greeted with respect in the marketplaces and to have the best seats in the synagogues and places of honor at banquets. They devour widows' houses and for the sake of appearance say long prayers. They will receive the greater condemnation. He sat down opposite the treasury and watched the crowd putting money into the treasury. Many rich people put in large sums. Poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which are worth a penny. And then he called his disciples and said to them, Truly, I tell you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the treasury, for all of them have contributed out of their abundance. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So throughout Christian history, much has been said about the widow's might. This poor woman with her two copper coins is one of the nameless heroines of Scripture. And we roll her out at least once a year as the poster child for faithful giving. 
Countless stewardship sermons have rested the full weight of their exhortations upon her aging but solid shoulders. If we would all just give as she gave, we say. And the last thing that I want to do with this sermon is to take any, anything away from this poor widow, given that she has already offered all that she had. However, this morning, I do think I can say that I just don't get the sense that Jesus was all that worried about her. Not because she didn't deserve the Savior's worry or attention, because she certainly did, but because I think Jesus knew he probably didn't have to worry too much about her. She was fine in his eyes. She got it. She knew what it meant to commit and to trust. She knew how to put herself completely in God's hands. She knew what it meant to give. A few years ago, I traveled with a church mission trip down to the Dominican Republic. We stayed at a religious school in Santo Domingo, but every day we would travel 30 minutes outside of town to a little farming community called Alondra. And our main project there in Alondra was to help a group of local women build new wooden pews for the local church. And every day at lunchtime, after working pretty hard in the morning, we would go to a little home next door to the church. Now, to say, to say that this was a humble dwelling would be a drastic understatement. The walls were cobbled together in an assembly of corrugated tin and plywood and plastic sheets, The floors were matted up dirt with a few little carpets here and there. The whole house had just two rooms. They were separated by some hanging bedsheets. There was an outer room where they had set up tables and plastic chairs for our group, and then a rear room where the family slept. And truth be told, if our tables hadn't been there in the front room, that's probably where the kids would sleep on a normal day. Every day, the neighborhood would come and they would offer us a sumptuous feast of chicken and beef and rice and beans and plantains and yucca. But the most memorable part of those meals for me was the juice. Mango, papaya, pineapple, passion fruit juices that were generously poured for all of us. And I would say that after working in the heat for a few hours... That juice that they served was the most refreshing, thirst-quenching treat that I could imagine. And what I didn't really know until later was how expensive it all was. Now, I certainly suspected that they probably didn't have a whole lot of chickens on a normal basis. I imagine that beef would have been particularly hard to come by in that place. But I found out much too late how much they must have spent just on the juice. The concentrate they used was a rare treat. It was an extravagance that they never would have showered on themselves. But they made sure that our cups were overflowing. And sure, we had contributed a little time and a little sweat to their church out of our abundance. But they, even in their poverty, had offered everything they had, all that they had to live on, and they gave it away with such joy, without a second thought to the cost. So no, I don't think Jesus was all that worried about this poor widow who gave herself so completely to God's temple without regard for her own needs. She was good. 
She may have looked poor, but in Jesus' eyes, in the eyes of God, she was the richest of all. I think Jesus was much more concerned about the people who were standing around watching the widow. We can't help but notice if we read that Jesus uses many more words to talk about them. And these are not happy words or comforting words. They're words like beware, devour, for the sake of appearance. And the crowning blow, they will receive the greater condemnation. So who are they in this story? They are the religious types hanging around the temple in long robes. Apparently, these are the ones that we need to be worried about. (laughs) I'm not trying to single you out. I'm just just reading uh, what it says. must be very embarrassing for them. Standing up here in some big old robe, right? (laughs) What? No, I get it. I'm wearing a robe, too. I know Jesus is talking about me. I know Jesus is talking about, I get one of these good seats up here, up front. We should be embarrassed, right? But I actually think that Jesus is talking about all of us here. All of us here, because we are all, in a sense, the religious establishment, right? Don't think for a moment that this story is somehow a Jewish Christian thing, that Jesus was condemning the Jews in the temple while preparing a way to give Christians a free pass. No, I don't think that any of us here today can claim to be the widow in this story. We're the long-robed people of the church. We're not the Dominican family that will eat rice for a month because of the bounteous spread that they offer to a group of missionaries. We're the Americans who plop down in their living room and drink all the juice. So if you think I'm being too harsh in all of this, let me fill out some more context here. As Jesus is giving this lesson, he is nearing the very ending of his ministry. He has entered Jerusalem on Palm Sunday several days before. It's Wednesday of Holy Week. It's hump day of Holy Week. Jesus is halfway to Good Friday and halfway to the cross. And he is standing in the temple of Jerusalem teaching. And he directs his students' attention to this object lesson that unfolds right before their very eyes. He notes on his left the long-robed scribes and the priests who crave honor and respect and visibility. And then he points to his right, where a poor woman is donating all that she had to support God's temple. And we didn't read this part, but Jesus, in the very next verse, walks out of the temple gates. He's through teaching in there for the day, and his students follow him out. And the very next words that come out of Jesus' mouth are these, Do you see these great buildings? Not one stone will be left here upon another. All of this, he says, will be thrown down. The temple, the permanent seat of God around which all of the nations were destined to gather, was apparently about to crash to the ground. 
this sacred institution that couldn't die, Jesus says is broken and on the verge of collapse. So not only had these long-robed men just watched a poor woman put everything she had into the temple treasury, they had watched her invest everything she had in something that would be completely gone in the blink of an eye. And I think that was the sin that was really making Jesus uncomfortable. He reserved his condemnation for the ones who were standing back and watching, keeping a safe distance, hedging their bets, while a widow, one whom the law specifically required that they take care of, while she emptied herself completely into a dying institution. He was mad at these guys because they were essentially watching her die with it. So what can we, as the well-heeled, long-robed people of the church, what can we take away from this teaching of Christ? I want to offer to you three things that I think um, we're invited to ask. Three ways that we're invited to make an honest appraisal of what you and I are doing in the church through this story. And the first question I think we have to ask ourselves in light of this story is this, how are we investing ourselves in the church as the body of Christ? Because without a doubt, the poor widow was all in. Out of her deep dedication to God, she gave everything she had to give. She had chosen to make honoring God and serving the Lord the top priority in her life, and she acted accordingly. The investment of the wealthy donors, on the other hand, was completely different. Sure, they gave much more, but they gave what they had out of the abundance of their resources, and chances are they weren't going to miss it. Whatever it was they threw into that till, it probably wasn't going to hurt too much. It was probably really not costing them all that much in relative terms. So the question is, which of these two portraits of giving most resembles us and our giving? Stated another way, at the end of the day, do we truly believe that the church of Jesus Christ is not only a safe investment, but the investment of our lives? Or are we hedging our bets maybe holding back, maybe sitting on the sidelines a bit, maybe giving enough to seem respectable, but being very careful to spread our devotion around. The second honest appraisal, I think, invited by this story is whether we are willing to make ourselves vulnerable in our faith. No, we're not called to step out in trepidation or in caution, to step out with hesitation or pause. Jesus calls us to step out in faith. And when Jesus calls us to pick up our cross and follow him, the implication is that this kind of following, this kind of discipleship is impossible to do without some vulnerability. The poor widow clearly makes herself vulnerable for God with the gift, the totality of her gift. Now, if we are brave enough, we can ask ourselves if we are willing to make that kind of commitment in our own discipleship. Pastor Pete Peary, who until very recently was the 
president of Montreat Conference Association. He has written that this kind of vulnerability is actually part of our DNA as Presbyterians. Our book of order was slimmed down significantly about a decade ago, and the language I'm about to read to you was actually revised out or or drastically rewritten in the interest of brevity. I think it was a major loss. But I do believe that these words I'm about to read, these words are still powerfully true. And they say something important about what we're called to be as the church. We believe that the church is called to be a sign and symbol of Christ in the world. And we believe that we are called to be that sign in certain tangible ways. And this is where I begin reading from the old book of order. We do that. We become that sign by healing and reconciling and binding up wounds by ministering to the needs of the poor, the sick, the lonely, and the powerless, by engaging in the struggle to free people from sin, from fear, oppression, hunger, and injustice, and by sharing with Christ in the establishing of his just, peaceable, and loving rule in the world. And here's the kicker. The church is called to undertake this mission even at the risk of losing its life. The point is that the church does not exist for the sake of the church. The church is not an institution called to engineer and ensure its own survival. On the contrary, the church is called to expend itself completely in mission. For the sake of God, for the sake of the gospel, for the sake of other human beings, all of whom are loved and cherished by God. So as we are, as members of the church and the body of Christ, are we willing to make ourselves vulnerable for the sake of the vulnerable? Or are there ways where we might be hanging back and playing it safe? Protecting our institutional life while people suffer both within our walls and beyond them. Last but not least, this story of the widow's might invites us to ask ourselves whether we are truly living lives of compassion and love, the kind of compassion and sacrificial love that Jesus modeled for us. If those long-robed men hadn't noticed the plight of that poor widow, why were they failing to see her? And if they had noticed the plight of that poor widow, why were they failing to help her, as Scripture required them to do? In 1974, a woman named Elizabeth Ballard wrote a story for a Baptist magazine called Home Life. It was a work of fiction, and she will say as much, but it was based, she says, on very real experiences that the author had growing up poor in Rockingham, North Carolina. I heard, I I expect that there are probably people in this room who will say you have heard this story before. I myself heard Tony Campolo tell this story when I was 19 years old, and I have never forgotten it. Jean Thompson was a fifth grade teacher. She was a good fifth grade teacher, but she was having a tough year. That year she had a little boy in her class by the name of Teddy Stollard. Teddy was a teacher's worst nightmare. He was sloppy, he was dirty, he was ill-mannered, he rarely bathed. 
He caused disruptions in the classroom all the time. He clearly did not like school, and he really didn't seem all that interested in anything else either. He made Miss Thompson's life so difficult that year that she began to take some mildly perverse pleasure in marking Teddy's papers with her red pen, enthusiastically making big red X's beside his many wrong answers. Now, there were reasons why Teddy acted this way. She hadn't really looked, but she could have looked. There were records. The school had records. It was all there. First grade, Teddy is a good boy. He shows promise in work and attitude, but a poor home situation. Second grade, Teddy does what he's told. His work is more than acceptable, but he is too serious. His mother is terminally ill. His father shows no interest. Third grade, Teddy is withdrawn. He is a troubled child. His mother died this year. Fourth grade, Teddy needs help. He is becoming detached from reality. Jean Thompson had records. She could have seen that fifth grade was just a continuation of this story through the earlier grades. When Christmas came, all the children brought their gifts and they piled them up on Miss Thompson's desk and most of them were wrapped in colorful paper with beautiful ribbons. And Teddy bought, brought a present tube. It was wrapped in dirty brown paper and sloppily bound together with scotch tape. Miss Thompson wasn't surprised at how the package looked. She was surprised that he had bothered to bring a package at all. And at the end of the day, Miss Thompson opened each gift in front of the class, and when she got to Teddy's gift, two things fell out of Teddy's grubby little package. A gaudy rhinestone bracelet with most of the stones missing and a half-used bottle of cheap perfume. The children began to snicker at the gifts, but Miss Thompson had the presence to stop them laughing by putting on that bracelet. Isn't she lovely, she said, as she showed the bracelet to the kids. She didn't think it was lovely. It's just what she said. And then she opened the bottle of perfume, and she put a few drops of the liquid on her wrist, and she let the class smell it. She made out like she was just really happy about all of it. At the end of the day, after the other children left, Teddy lingered behind. He came up to the teacher's desk, and he said, Miss Thompson... All day today, you smell just like my mother used to smell. That's her bracelet, and it looks very nice on you. I'm really glad you like my presence. And when Teddy left the room, as soon as that door closed behind him, Jean Thompson fell down on her knees, and she wept. And she prayed and she asked God to forgive her. To forgive her for not seeing. Forgive her for not acting. And the next day those kids had a new teacher. They had a teacher who was committed not only to teaching those kids but to loving those kids. And especially loving the ones who were the toughest to love. The ones who were failing. The ones who were hurting the ones who felt hopeless, and she began with Teddy Stollard. 
After a little attention and some care, Teddy immediately began to show improvement. He caught up with the rest of the class. He even passed a few by the end of fifth grade. Teddy moved away after that, and Gene Thompson didn't hear from him. And then one day, after a while, she received a letter just out of the blue. Dear Miss Thompson, I'm graduating from high school. I am second in my class. I wanted you to be the first to know. Love, Teddy Stollard. Four years after that, another note arrived. Miss Thompson, as of today, I am graduating from college. I am first in my class. I wanted you to be the first to know. It hasn't been easy, but I liked it. Love, Teddy Stollard. Four years after that, dear Miss Thompson, as of this moment, I am Theodore Stollard, MD. How about that? I wanted you to be the first to know. I'm getting married next month on the 27th. And if you can, I would like for you to come. And I want you to sit where my mother would have sat. You're the only family I have. Dad died this year. So Jean Thompson went, and she sat where Teddy's mother would have sat because she had earned the right to be there. She'd earned the right to be there because she saw a little boy that the world was not seeing, and she loved a little boy that the world was not loving, so take it from me, a guy wearing a long robe in church. This message is for us. The widow is good. And she will receive her reward. But as we gather around this familiar scripture again, as we once again watch her as she gives everything to God, the hard questions are for us. Are we investing in our faith? Are we investing in the body of Christ with everything we have? Are we willing to take some risks, to venture out in faith, to make ourselves vulnerable for God and God's children, just as Christ did, who gave of himself even at the risk of losing his own life? Perhaps most importantly, are we looking upon the world, upon our brothers and sisters near and far? Are we seeing them and loving them with grace and compassion and love? May God give us eyes to see and the courage to follow Christ into this high calling that is ours. Amen.